So, yeah, so who's had something to drink? I have, too. <laughs> hands up, hands up. And who's tripping? <laughs> it's a serious question. I mean, you know, in a different universe, in a parallel universe, probably, I mean, these roles could be switched around, right? Like, when you think about the completely arbitrary nature of our drug laws. So, um, yeah, so what if these laws are backward and uh, mushrooms, for example, were legal and alcohol were illegal? What would you be doing then? Maybe the really, really large doses of psychedelics, maybe that's like getting really, really pissed, right? Maybe that's like overdosing. You know, the talk is meant to be psychedelics as medicines, right? So I'm going to put another question to you. Why is this even interesting? Why not some other, like, random, uninteresting drug? Like, all the other drugs I study in my lab. Like, so, you know, my lab's done clinical trials with LSD, ketamine, psilocybin, parampinol, tiagabine, propofol, scopolamine, glycoperonium, remifentanil, midazolam, lorazepam, propofol. The list goes on and on and on. And no one gives a about any of that stuff. It's kind of... It's a kind of interesting thing. Like, well, why is this interesting? Is it maybe because it's a controlled substance, right? Maybe that's perhaps a bit of titillation, right? Controlled substance. Well, you know, we use controlled substances in medicine all the time, right? Who's going to stop a terminally ill cancer patient getting morphine? Like, this is an essential, essential medicine for relieving the pain of people who are suffering, right? This is a controlled substance. This is a highly addictive substance with an addictive potential that far outweighs... Um, mushrooms or LSD or any of these psychedelic drugs, right? So, okay. It's not only is it more addictive, it's far more dangerous. So in pharmacology, we have something called the therapeutic index, right? So therapeutic index is how much you need to have an active dose and then how many of those doses you would need to, to basically die or at least be hospitalized, right? So the therapeutic index of like morphine or something is probably like four or five, something like that, where you would basically die of an overdose, right? So it's a pretty small therapeutic index. If you think about alcohol, what quite a few of you are drinking tonight, the therapeutic index of alcohol is about 10. So, you know, you have a glass of wine, it's good. 10 glasses of wine, you're in the hospital, right? So it's you know, a little bit larger therapeutic index. What about, say, LSD? Um, well, you know, 50 micrograms of LSD, you'll start feeling that as a pretty active dose you could take probably five milligrams of LSD and you're not going to be having a good time. Uh, you're going to need a lot of care, but you will be fine. You won't die. So you're talking like a therapeutic index of 1,000, right? So these are not physiologically toxic drugs. So why is this an interesting topic? Why is these drugs being used as medicines potentially interesting? And why is it more interesting than using morphine to treat cancer? I don't really know the answer to that. Is it our weird classification system for drugs? You know, the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975, it says literally on the tin that drug classifications in New Zealand are based on harm. But if you just think about what I just told you, there's just no evidence for it, right? So all these drugs I've told you about, you know, we do safety evaluations of all of them before we do a clinical trial, right? So I know the safety profiles reasonably well. Uh, and there's no way that you can possibly say that these drugs are more harmful 
these are class A substances, right? Um, there's no possible way you can say that these are more harmful than things that we classify as class C. You can't even say they're more harmful than alcohol. You think about all the social harm that alcohol causes, right? Like, everyone's quite happily sitting here drinking, right? But you think about our Queen Street over there on a Friday night filled with violence and emergency rooms filled up and family violence and all that harm that comes with it and all the physiological toxicity. So the classifications don't make sense. What I would say is that the classifications are making sense for drugs that newly get invented and... Uh, so when like a new synthetic cannabinoid comes along, right, they make that and they classify that. Those are now being put in the correct classes, right? Those are really dangerous drugs. Um, and they're being passed as class A drugs and that's all good. But what, what we're not doing is like looking back and saying, well, all these stupid things that we had in the past, all these stupid classifications, why aren't we revisiting those? And, you know, that's just political expediency, right? So we're pretty sure that these aren't particularly dangerous drugs. Um, and so we're still wondering why this is an interesting topic. Um, well, you know, so it's not the drug. So we've got, like, you know, say, magic mushrooms for depression, and we've got morphine for cancer. So it's not the drug. Maybe it's the patient. Maybe depressed patients deserve medicine less. I'm not saying that's true, right? I'm saying that's the stigma, right? Well, it's just a possible hypothesis, right? Like... I completely disagree with that hypothesis, right? I think it's bonkers, right? But maybe that's just a vestige of our system, right? That we think that people that suffer from cancer, they deserve all the possible medicines that could possibly be investigated for them to be fully investigated uh, and researched, whereas mental health patients, well, just toughen up, you know? Maybe that's just a vestige of that old thing. I don't know. I'm just raising it as a possibility. Uh, but for me, the reason that I study these drugs has nothing to do with that. I study these drugs because they're kind of interesting. When, like, I give you all these other things I'm talking about in the lab, like, you know, alcohol or all these sedatives and anesthetics, blah, 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 you will get a little bit tired, maybe your breathing rate will slow down and get a bit sleepy, and, uh, and then maybe if you take some kind of stimulant, you know, some kind of amphetamine-type drug, you get a bit kind of hyper, and we'll measure that, and it's all fun. But these psychedelic drugs do something a little bit different. Um, and I'm not going to ask who's taken a psychedelic drug, because I'm not going to ask you to confess to a crime, uh, because there would be a crime, right? Uh, unless you did it in one of my clinical trials, and then it's not a crime. Uh, you're participating in research, so that's okay. Some of you will be familiar with the experience of these drugs. There's something really different psychologically happening with these drugs, right? That's not just stimulation or, uh, or sedation. There's something where people's thought processes change in quite a qualitatively different way. People have these quite, what at least to them seems profound. Like, you know, so people think, you know... Some of the things, you know, we see in the lab, people, maybe they reflect deeply on their past. Maybe they remember things that they'd kind of forgotten. Or maybe often what happens is they kind of have this weird perception of how they relate to nature, how they relate to people around them, uh, how they... a sense of oneness with the universe. It is engendering, like, a different kind of experience in people that's actually quite high-level cognitively. So these are quite high-level cognitive experiences, right, that people are having. A feeling of mysticism, connection, 
these are pretty human experiences, I would say. And to me, it's kind of cool that I can just like stuff some chemicals in you and, and not make you feel that way, but you'll reliably feel that way. Uh, and so there's something kind of interesting in there that these chemicals are able to engender these quite high-level experiences, which also kind of shows that those kind of experiences can be just purely biologically driven, right? I can just basically activate it. You can have these profound spiritual experiences <laughs> while you're being MRI scanned. <laughs> and that's quite a feat, right? Because, I don't know, has people been in an MRI scanner before? And if those people have been, if you take the subset of those people who have been in an MRI scanner and those people that have been tripping, and if you happen to have done both of those, imagine that joining those two experiences together. <laughs> Some people are just going, oh my God. Uh, it, well, tripping in a scanner is an experience. Um, but one of the things we can do, of course, is we can make people trip in the scanner and then we can start to record their brain activity, right? So even in the scanner, people have these profound internalized experiences where they lose even their sense of self, right? So they start to kind of lose a sense of who they are as a person. They begin to feel more connected with the universe and we can measure their brain activity while that's going on. So that's pretty fun. Uh, what about bad trips? Okay, so this is a good, this good myth-dispelling thing. There's no such thing as bad acid. What happens when LSD degrades? It turns into ice. We don't need to know the chemistry. It turns into iso-LSD, and it's actually inactive in the brain. Uh, it actually makes it a real pain because to actually produce it and to keep it stable, to give it into a clinical trial, it's actually really difficult to do. So there's no such thing as bad acid, but what there is is bad states of mind and bad interactions of the drug with the person's physiology. So that's what, a, and that's what a bad trip would be. It's not the acid itself. It's the interaction of that with whatever biological state that system's already in. And maybe they're not psychologically prepared for it or whatever. We go into all that kind of stuff. But um, is that true for every drug? No, it's not true for every drug. You know, this is a this is a question of drug purity, right? Uh, and street drugs are a pretty poor approximation of what we would give in a laboratory to someone. So, you know, we get our drugs pharmaceutically manufactured and we know exactly to the tiniest amount and the absolute purity of what happens. On the street, you know, you don't actually know what's being given. So, I guess street drugs are very different to think about than la pure laboratory chemicals. And a pure laboratory chemical is one that would eventually get turned into a medicine. So the way to think about it is in terms of purity. So you would never have a bad drug that would actually be delivered as a medicine. One of the things to bear in mind is when we run a study like this, our participants will receive multiple hours of screening, right? I've just screened, been, I actually just came here from screening of participants, right, uh, for our next study. So they'll come in and we'll do a full medical history with them um, and then we'll collect... Um, Bloods to check their general physical health, and then we'll check um, cardiac health is really important to us. Then we'll check all the psychiatric health. Now, checking in particular, one of the things that we're really careful of is checking for any, like, um, maybe low-level psychoses that are in there. Uh, and these are even just healthy people, right? It gets much more complicated when you start dealing with people that maybe have a mental health disorder. For example, we would be pretty reluctant to give someone who had, say, bipolar disorder, even though they might have 
bipolar depression, we'd be pretty reluctant to give a drug like this to someone with that because we're really apprehensive about um, treating some, some, some kind of psychosis. To be fair, we don't really know that much about what happens because we just haven't gone there. Uh, it's just too risky at this stage uh, to even bother going there. So, so the thing to bear in mind, it's kind of a backwards answer to your question, but the people that you see going through these trials, and the, these are a really carefully selected population of people that are carefully medically and psychiatrically screened, and that's when we think it's safe to do it. And then, of course... There is medical monitoring that goes along with it and also just people there to make sure you're okay. This science is in its infancy and it's a good time for me to get back into the history now after this, but what always happens in clinical trials is you always start with a really narrow population, a really clean, disordered population, and then you build it out from there. So you work with your kind of core disorder, you try to strip out as many of the other um, complexities, and then you build out your population from there. And that happens through phase one, phase two, phase three of the clinical trial process till eventually your post-marketing. So that sphere gets expanded, but you want to start with your simplest possible thing and then hopefully it will work out. And that's true for most of the medicines that will be on the market as well. So, so the process... Um, so it's a good time to go back into history books, right? Actually, it's a shame this wasn't yesterday because yesterday was actually Bicycle Day. Who's heard of Bicycle Day? Yeah, some people have heard of it. So Bicycle Day, Bicycle Day was a day in 1943, April the 20th, when a Swiss chemist called Albert Hoffman discovered LSD. Um, and it's a funny story. It must have been incredibly traumatic for Hoffman. Uh, he was studying these drugs as antihypertensives. Um, and he'd, he, you know, what you do in drug discovery, you synthesize a whole bunch of chemicals and you give it to rats, see what happens. Actually, not much happened with LSD the first time he synthesized it. He revisited it. And then, you know, nothing really remarkable was happening. Uh, the, when you take acid, it takes maybe an hour or two to come up, right? And he was bicycling home when he came up. So, you know, he surmised later that he must have spilt one of these chemicals on himself when he was in the lab. And so, you know, when people now take these drugs, they know what they're taking, right? Whereas, I can't even imagine, like, and he probably got quite a whacking dose, right? I think it was maybe like 600 micrograms, I think he might have estimated. That might be an overestimate. I have that memory in there somewhere. So, but he didn't even know that he was, this was going to happen to him, right? And he just flipped out for like a day or two and had these very strange experiences, what I imagine. And then, so, and then he surmised, ah, oh, right, okay. So, and he figured out what it was, a bit of self-experimentation, and they figured out that it was LSD-25 that had caused these strange experiences. Now, that was in 1943, right? Um, and LSD, you know, wasn't... Psychedelics weren't really in the consciousness. People, there were shamanic cultures using variations. I won't really talk about that much, but we could later if you wanted to. But the important thing is that Hoffman immediately recognised that this was a really interesting thing, that there was something, these experiences that I've been talking about, that he identified that really on as being, OK, you can really change people's minds. And he was talking to his psychiatrist buddies. And then they started doing the, the, sort of the first experiments with LSD, kind of investigating its psychometric properties. Between 1943 and 1970, over a thousand scientific papers were published using LSD as an experimental intervention um, 
to basically investigate its properties. Over 20,000 patients were administered LSD during this era, and it was showing reasonably promising results, right? Um, when we look back at that, those data now, we think that's kind of interesting. That seems pretty good. The problem, of course, is that clinical trial design as we know it now really developed in about the 1940s, 50s, 60s, right? So the way we, we validate any medicine now, it goes through the kind of clinical trials process, and that was only coming to its fore during the peak of the psychedelic era. So not many of those studies were using what we would now consider to be our gold standard methods, right? Um, so what, while we now look back at those data and think, oh, it really looks really interesting, but we can't really use it for much because it doesn't meet all the standards generally that we would now want to see in a clinical trial. So we see all this promise in the 1960s and 50s data, but we can't really use it. So we have to start again. And the reason we need to start again, of course, is because the war on drugs happened, right? Um, there was this whole 1960s counterculture thing and... Um, some psychiatrists, such as Timothy Leary, kind of used it as an anti-establishment thing. There's a whole history around that. I don't want to go into it. But essentially, the powers that be were not happy about this. And so they started to make it incredibly difficult to do drugs studies on these drugs. Grants dried up. And, they, and it was never actually that they made the research illegal. They just... Do what they do now and make it so goddamn hard to do the research. It crushes your soul. <laughs> and they just crush you out of it. And that's still the approach that's used today to stop people doing this research, is that they just crush you through regulation. So that, and essentially, and it's interesting, right? So there was like, you know, there's really interesting Senate hearings in 1968 because they were using LSD in particular for alcoholism, right? Because there's a big problem back then. So and the founders, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, was actually a believer in the use of LSD. And it was interesting, if you listen back to the Senate hearings, Robert Kennedy, his wife took um, LSD for some kind of neurosis and claimed that it healed her or whatever. But he was a big enthusiast, right? He was the Eternal General of the United States and, like, you know, chairman of some Senate committee. He was like, well, you know, why are we stopping research in this? It all seems so promising. And if it was so promising a year ago, why have we now essentially made it illegal? And he didn't get an answer to that question. Um, and it's still the question that we have now, right? It's like, well, why have we stopped this research? And so research stopped in about 1972, the last NIH, that's National Institute of Health uh, study, terminated. And that was it. Um, nothing was done till around 2010. few groups started doing it. I was involved with one of those groups in London. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, more... Fun, fun anecdotes, right? So it's like, well, how do you start a study like this out of nowhere? So Robin Carhart-Harris and David Nutt, they were like, well, let's try and study you know, psychedelics. And like, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, and so you know, the reason they chose psilocybin was because no one knew what it was, right? So <laughs> you stick LSD into an ethics committee and it's like, boot. <laughs> so they use psilocybin as a kind of, you know, very non-controversial kind of sounding thing. People didn't know what it was. If you, as long as you don't call it magic mushrooms, you can probably get it. Uh, you know, ease the, ease the path, right? Uh, and, and, and that really started off things, at least in the UK, and then um, those studies then moved on, and then we did the first brain imaging study of LSD, and that was kind of interesting. Uh, I think that wrapped up in 2014, um, and then I came here, and there's just no way of doing that here because it's too difficult to an hour. And so 
We've now started to get an understanding of how these things work in the brain. We're understanding think, boring things that like, no one cares about, but I care about them, but uh, like signaling pathways in the brain, how the mechanisms kind of work in the brain, getting in, and just starting the first inklings of how we can run the trials. So we're now at the point where we're thinking, okay, we can now give these things again to humans. Can they now have some kind of clinical use where we could potentially test them in patient populations? And that's really where things are at at the moment in terms of the current state of things. So you will hear all this stuff in the media about these drugs, that they're potentially useful, uh, but we don't know the answer to that yet because uh, we're scientists. Well, at least I'm a scientist, and I uh, want evidence before I'm going to say something works. And I'm, I'm quite unlike my colleagues because I'm a bit of a skeptic. I don't think anything works until you show me otherwise. Uh, primary indications that we're thinking about for psychedelics are primarily in the mood disorders. So we're primarily thinking about depression and anxiety. And then there's also potentially around um, some addictive behaviours uh, as well. But there's a kind of commonality there that these are kind of behaviours that are kind of... where there's a kind of behavioural rigidity, uh, where people get locked into kind of patterns of potentially unhealthy thoughts or behaviour. It's kind of interesting, right, because you've got these things that could potentially work for quite a range of disorders, and what normally we try to think about specificity, right? Like you have a drug that targets a disorder, but here we have these things that kind of have this quite rain, wide-ranging potential application. I just gain stress, potential. Um, so we've got a lot of challenges coming before us, and one of the big things is, and this is the thing that gets my goat, right, is that it's really hard to do these trials, right? Pretty much all the trials that we do in clinical populations are... Um, they're not very good, uh, and this is why. When you run a randomised control trial, you have a healthy group and a control group. Well, you have, a, you have your patients, and you split them into two groups, your placebo group and your other group, your treatment group, right? Now, you, then, you split them into the groups, and you don't tell them what group they're in, right? And that's what you do when you, like, give someone aspirin. And they, they get the white pill or the white pill, but one of them's aspirin, one of them's not, and then, you know, you test whether it makes their headaches better. But the problem is, of course, when you're dealing with these psychoactive drugs, the blinding gets broken, right? So the person knows which treatment arm they are in. And so the person goes, ah, oh, the person like enrolls in the psilocybin trial and goes, yes, I want to make my depression better. I'm going to go to the psilocybin trial. And person one goes, damn, nothing happened. I got the placebo. And then the person B goes, ah, oh, well, I'm tripping. Awesome, I got the drug. And so you can see that regardless of whether the thing actually has any physiological property, that deblinding is a real problem, right? And this is called essentially the placebo response, right? So how do we then take these trial designs and try to decouple the placebo response from any actual genuine effect of the drug? We don't know the answer to this. Uh, I have about a 30,000-word paper trying to design some designs around how we might be able to do this in the future, but we haven't yet conducted a psychedelic trial where we've been able to control for the deblinding and expectancy effects, right? And the, cool, the really bad thing is, right, like, you read these articles in The Guardian, and it's all over the place, right, these psychedelics. Every time an article comes like that, 
people are thinking, oh, these things are magic. Well, they're magic mushrooms. So, you know, every article, the placebo response gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Every time that happens, it actually makes harder and harder to actually decouple those two things from each other. So we need to be... And this is why I think we're quite a long way away from like actually having these things work in a scientifically rigorous manner. We could probably like get... Some people will try and get them over the line in a scientifically unrigorous manner, and good luck to them. Uh, and that will probably happen, but that's not my interest. Uh, my interest is in trying to do it in a scientifically rigorous manner, and I don't think we're there yet. So I think we're still quite a ways from actually getting these right in a really principled scientific way. Does microdosing potentially uh, help that deblinding? So microdosing is this kind of weird thing that was invented around 2010. This guy, James Fadiman, wrote this book, and he was like, people now are doing this weird thing. They're taking like one-tenth of a dose of LSD, so it's about 10 micrograms, and this is a dose of LSD that's right at the threshold of perception, right? Like, you can kind of feel it, maybe. Or maybe you can't. Eh, I don't know. Uh, and so... In... And so people are doing this recreationally every third day. It's the, it's the Fadiman schedule, right? And people are claiming that these are... They're taking it not recreationally, right? They're taking it for a lifestyle choice. So it's not being used as a recreational drug. It's a lifestyle choice. They're taking this thing to try to enhance their lives. Some people are taking it to try to deal with some kind of mental health anxiety issues. Don't recommend it because there's no evidence for it. Uh, but that's what people are doing out in the community. We estimate that in New Zealand there's probably around 1,000 people doing that. Um, we guesstimate there's several thousand people microdosing in New Zealand uh, as, a as a lifestyle practice. So there's a couple of interesting things there. Though, because it's right at the threshold of perception, there's two interesting scientific things there, right? Right at the edge of perception. So you could potentially blind that, right? You could probably even give somebody nothing because we give people nothing and they think they've taken stuff all the time in the lab, right? So you can probably just through, you know, setting up the laboratory environment or setting up the environment that people, some people might, or, or at least they're un there's a degree of uncertainty, right, about whether they've had something. So then you could potentially test for those kind of therapeutic effects in a blinded fashion. So that's what we're going to be doing in the trial that we're trying to get going at the moment and we're just screening participants for. So one of the claims, for example, is that people claim that they find that they become more creative or that they find that their um, ability to work on computer programming problems is enhanced after their microdose. That's an interesting phenomenon. It'd be pretty cool if it was true. Could just be a placebo effect. Who knows? Let's test it. So that's essentially what the study is doing. What we're also doing in that study is testing it, testing the safety, testing the feasibility. Because maybe, if it is safe and feasible, we could then later, in a year or two's time, test it in a mental health population, see whether it actually does improve anxiety, or whether it's all just a crock of... and it's all just a placebo effect, which is an entirely possible thing to do. And that would be a really important result, right? If it was all a placebo response, and say, stop microdosing, get back to your doctor, and get proper treatment. <laughs> or... Maybe it does work, and then it's like, okay, let's keep going after this as a potential therapy. So there's, that's one interesting thing that microdosing potentially does. The other thing that's kind of interesting as a thought concept is that if 
you're microdosing, you aren't having a big psychedelic experience, right? But you're still, if you were, if it were therapeutic, that would suggest that you're able to create that therapeutic response without needing this big mind-altering experience, right? Which suggests that actually maybe when people are tripping, they're overdosing, which is what I was referring to at the start, right? Maybe that's actually an overdose uh, scenario. Maybe you could actually harness these things at much lower, safer doses um, that they could actually have therapeutic use. At those low doses, you could show it more easily. So that's kind of an interesting thing because there's an argument in the literature. Do you actually need to have this mind-altering experience to feel better afterwards? Or is it just a biological process? Because I just think your mind, you know, your body is just a vehicle for your brain and your mind is just an epiphenomenon of your brain, right? Because I can change your mind real quick. Have we seen, if we compare healthy people to controls, whether you can see changes in mood in the brain scans? And the answer to that is basically yes, you can. There's particular areas that you can identify. Uh, we haven't, no one's done that like long term. I think at London they're collecting, or they've collected that data, but they haven't published it yet, like 30 days afterwards. Now, it's really important to think about these drugs as well. It's another thing, is that there's something called drug half-life, right? So that's the amount of times it takes for half of the drug to leave your body. Right, okay, so the drug half-life of psilocybin, say, we'll just focus on psilocybin because it's an easy one, right? So it's four hours. Now, we consider in pharmacology that drugs left your brain after five half-lives. So it's 20 hours, right? So 20 hours, about 20 hours after you take psilocybin, we won't be able to detect it in your body, right? If we take some blood samples off you, ain't nothing there. But... People also will report these like psychedelic afterglows that they feel that something has changed, right? Or they, they still feel effects for days and days and days afterwards, right? But that's not the drug, right? The drug is gone. The drug has left their body completely. It's untraceable. The drug has changed their body, potentially permanently. Potentially that's a bad thing. Potentially it's a good thing. Maybe it depends on how it's been changed. But the key thing is that the drug engenders what we call synaptic plasticity, right? So it actually changes the physical structure of the brain by giving these interventions, which is kind of interesting to think about. So it's not that people are high anymore. That's all gone. It's actually that the brain structure has changed. And there's plenty of evidence that neurons grow and that they grow new synapses throughout the lifespan. And we know, if because if we give this drugs to rats, we can actually measure that. If you give LSD or psilocybin to a rat, you can actually see new synapses growing in their brain. So it may be that the psychological experience is actually independent of actually these change in neural growth that you can see. Or maybe not. One of the things we do know, and again, this is like, this is the problem of correlation and causation, right? So there's been large surveys. People generally who have taken psychedelic drugs in the past are happier. That, of course, does not mean that people are happier because they took psychedelic drugs, right? There's all sorts of confounding things. So there's no causal link between that. So it's really important to think about what... This is true in all of science, right? To really think about what it is that's generated the evidence that you're reading in a headline because a lot of the times it's written really badly by people. If you look at the surveys of people that do microdose, a lot of people take microdoses because... Um, they say it improves your mood, but some people stop taking it because they find that it's unpleasant, right? And so 
that's a mild, what we would call a mild adverse event. So the safety of these things is probably pretty good, but we don't know, so don't take, do this at home. I work at, in the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I, got, I have to say this, right? I work in the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I investigate drugs and therapies that for people who are in the worst possible state, right? We should be, as a society, we should be trying to stop people going off the cliff. Right? And these are the social determinants of mental health that would be much more sensible to address. Ketamine is a psychedelic drug, right? It's an anesthetic um, at high doses, but it's been shown to have pretty strong antidepressant effects. At the antidepressant doses, people do tend to have these kind of psychedelic experiences. And it's really widely used now um, in the United States for the treatment of depression. There are ketamine clinics all over the place propping up people. And it's pretty remarkable. There's, there's a lot of evidence now for ketamine as an antidepressant therapy. It's pretty remarkable when, you know, like being a hard-nosed scientist aside, when you have someone who's had, you know, chronic depression for 20, 30 years come in, you give them a ketamine injection, and all of a sudden the kind of the fog lifts from them within an hour, and it's quite a remarkable thing. So it's like, click. So, you know, it could be a placebo response, but that's often can be hard to reconcile as a human being, uh, that it could be so strong. So there's a lot of clinics now opening up around the world, really, looking at ketamine. Now, what hasn't really been investigated carefully is how, we inter how the ketamine would relate to potential combined psychotherapy. And... It's just a weird kind of sociological thing that most of the ketamine research is done by psychiatrists and they don't really do too much psychotherapy. Uh, and uh, so we, we haven't really worked out yet as a discipline if you could combine the two really well and if that would potentially... So one of the things when you give ketamine is an antidepressant, after about seven days it starts wearing off and then you would need to go in for another injection and... And that's actually what happens. But we don't know if you like coupled it with therapy, for example, to maybe could you improve your behaviour patterns, et cetera, et cetera. Could that strengthen, lengthen out the response? And what I should say is that ketamine is now approved as a medicine for depression in New Zealand. So there's a nasal spray version of ketamine uh, produced by a company called by Janssen. They're the guys that make the COVID vaccine that causes the blood clots. Really irregular blood clots. Don't worry about it. It's one in a million. Like, it's like get the pill and that will give you like one in a thousand people blood clots so why don't know people are worrying about this stuff right it's just complete nonsense it's like take the vaccine uh take the vaccine <laughs> just take the vaccine if you get a chance to take the vaccine uh so so yeah so jansen and J jansen have been have now uh, got a nasal spray version of ketamine over the line um it's just too expensive in new zealand for our healthcare system to basically afford it um but they're trying to um, increase the prevalence of it but because if, you if you're a clinician in New Zealand and you want to give ketamine, you have to do what's called off-label use. Um, and it's a little bit more complex and people are reluctant to do it and there's a stigma around it because it's a controlled substance. Uh, so this is kind of one of those awful things. It's a controlled substance. It has a slight, slight addiction potential, less addiction potential than alcohol, mind you, uh, less dangerous than alcohol, mind you. <laughs> but, but all the stigma around it means that clinicians are really reluctant to give it to patients. Ketamine is like at the cusp, right, of widespread use. The other things like LSD, psilocybin, so those are much further behind, right? And because ketamine is already in the, in the it's already an approved medicine, right? 
all you have to do with ketamine is just use it for something else, right? So that's what off-label use is already approved. Now, to get, how do you get LSD or psilocybin as an approved medicine? So we've got to talk about like commercial stuff here, right? So, and it's going to be a really difficult road for these drugs because they're old drugs. They're old and they can't patent them, right? And, and who makes drugs? Uh, drug companies make drugs. And drug companies make drugs to make money. Uh, and governments don't investigate drugs, right? They do some pilot work, like they fund our kind of pilot work to like get things going and stuff like that. But the big trials to get drugs over the line are funded by drug companies, right? And for a drug company to invest a billion dollars in a drug development program, they've got to be able to make money off it. So what the what strategy at the moment... Now there's a, but there's now like a really interest, huge interest by pharmaceutical companies in this, but how can we do it? How can we make money out of these old drugs? So what they're doing is they're like flipping like, you know, flipping the chemicals around and making variations to see if those are, uh, you know whether they could be therapeutic. But the problem is, once you flip a molecule around, then you're way back at phase one. Uh, and then you've got to start all the way at the beginning. So even though like, we know like, LSD is probably pretty safe, uh, we're going to have to go all the way back and use some weird version of it back at phase zero, do all the preclinical testing, then we have to go through phase one. And so then you're looking like a 10-year pathway, right, to create this, this new therapy from a chemical that we already know uses. Now, some companies are going, well, okay, well, maybe we can't patent the molecule, or maybe we could put it like in some kind of spray or some specific formulation. Maybe, maybe we can patent that, or maybe we can patent some kind of bespoke psychotherapy that goes along with it, or maybe we can patent uh, like um, some other thing around the production process. But so we're kind of stuck in this thing that this is the way medicines get produced, right? And if you want to get a medicine into New Zealand, New Zealand has a really um, selection of drugs available for patients, right? Because the government doesn't go, oh, we need these medicines. Drug companies go to MedSafe and they go, we want to sell these medicines in New Zealand. And we're a tiny little market, right? Uh, so we're pretty late down the chain of like companies wanting to actually bother to market medicines into New Zealand. So um, we're probably pretty low down the list as well. Uh, one of the things that is happening as well is companies doing now we have some foundations working on it. So the big one is MAPS have taken MDMA and they're using that for PTSD. And so that's when they've managed to pull a huge amount of philanthropic resource together to actually push it to push it as a foundation to try to produce it from a non-profit kind of perspective. So that's the other way we can go. But I think in the long run, we're looking at quite a few years before um, these things would be available as medicines, even if they were to work, because there's a long pathway that's got to be walked through to get them over the line. We have no biomarkers. So when you go, when you have a heart problem, you know, you'll get an echocardiogram done, maybe, um, you know, all sorts of tests will be done, you know, bloods will be taken, you'll have a clinical interview done, and um, all these things will be put together, and a cardiologist make a kind of decision based on all these factors. Psychiatric disorders, at their root, not even about treatment, 
the, even the diagnosis, there's no like biomarkers. Even the diagnosis of psychiatric disorders have no biomarkers associated. A psychiatrist will try to rule out some kind of other organic problem, that there might be some other thing going on that may have caused the depression. But we have no way of actually even diagnosing these things. And the diagnostic systems are like a heuristic depression. Well, actually, you know, like, you know, we, have pa- we do clinical trials on patients with depression. They're all a bit different. Like, no one's the same. You couldn't really say that it's a single disorder. It's kind of an umbrella for, like, all these, this, what we call heterogeneity. Everyone's a little bit different. So it's kind of an umbrella disorder. It's an umbrella disorder. We can't measure it. And we don't know what's going on. So how the hell can we treat it? I don't know. <laughs> it's a really difficult problem. Uh, you know, all you can really do is be pragmatic. Uh, and, you know, you... I'm going to say something controversial for many people, but antidepressants work, right? Like, you know, uh, we know this just based on evidence uh, that there's been a hell of a lot of head-to-head clinical trials and they do work. They don't work for everybody. You know, there's a, you have to be careful of what I call the silent majority. Like, so what we know from clinical evidence is one out of, if there are three people with depression, one will go into their GP, they will get antidepressants, and actually it'll work for them quite well, and they will um, have a pretty decent response to it. And they're what I would call the silent one. One-third is in a majority, but it's the one-third, they're just going to go about their business, right? Uh, it's the other, of the, the second person, two to four interventions, and they'll probably find some kind of relief. And this is the third person that we don't have anything for. But that antidepressant stuff, it does work. And then there's also... But also counselling works, right? Counselling works just as well. Uh, and actually what's been shown with clinical evidence is that counselling and drug therapy works together. And with psychedelics, what we don't know yet is how we would integrate psychedelics with psychotherapy to actually optimise the response. Even if there was a response, how would we optimise it? We don't know because it's incredibly hard to run clinical trials of psychotherapy because how do you blind a psychotherapeutic intervention? Really difficult to do. And then how do you blind psychedelics? Well, that's pretty hard too. And if you're going to combine them together, you've just got the problem squared. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, But what I can say is that although we can't diagnose people, we can run studies and we can find systematic differences at a group level, right? So I can put a group of depressed patients in my scanner and a group of healthy patients and I can see systematic differences between those groups that... On average, across 20 or 30 people, I can see differences. What I can't do is diagnose an individual person because there's just too much variation in the measures that we take. So we can see consistent biological differences, but we can't diagnose based off it. Yeah. So how do you recruit? Um, so it depends on the trials. Some trials, it will just be social media advertising, and you, you get in there and just find people out in the community. And some people, they, some trials will be referred through a pathway, like through GPs or s- secondary care services. Depends on the trial. So there's various ways that can happen. Why do people want to do it? Well, that's the interesting question, right? And in my experience, patients, obviously they're looking for a treatment, but they're obviously quite aware that they could end up in the placebo group, right? Uh, and in my experience, actually, patients are actually quite altruistic. Uh, that they're really interested that people are bothering to study their 
condition, the disease or you know the disorder that they have, and so people are generally pretty. Um, there's quite a lot of altruism involved. Actually, they don't do it for money because we don't. <laughs> well, you know, we kind of give them a small koha for like costs, and it's trivial compared to the amount of time they put in. So we generally find that people participate out of altruism, and they they're just happy that someone cares enough to like uh, spend a huge amount of time and resource and energy trying to work out stuff about their disorder. So I think generally, like, it's quite altruistic and it's quite. Um, Humbling, actually. <laughs>